we can clearly see from reading scripture that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for redemption and forgiveness from sins. The blood of Christ is not a potion which makes us like him, nor does his blood hold to additional man-made teachings that ultimately denigrate the truth. 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Romans 5.9 tells us that we have been justified by his blood, and because of that, we are saved from the wrath of God. Hebrews 9 says that Christ secured an eternal redemption for us by entering the holy place by his own blood, and not the blood of bulls and goats. It also tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 and 22. Has there been a misunderstanding of the blood of Christ? Yes. Does God himself misunderstand the blood of Christ? No, he does not. Brothers and sisters, give no credence to practices having nothing to do with sound biblical teaching and having more in common with pagan beliefs. The blood of Jesus Christ redeems sinners from sin and the wrath of God. When this is not taught, we miss Christ altogether. You just heard an excerpt from my latest blog post featured on Love Scribe. Hi there, and welcome to the Love Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Scribe. Recently, we received communion in our corporate church service. So there were scriptures that were read that were referencing back to the blood of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. We worshiped him in song. We received the, the bread and the, the juice and uh, to symbolize his body and his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. It was a very beautiful time. And it's something that you and I as Christians are told to do in scripture that we do this in remembrance of what Christ did for us, and that when we do this, we are remembering his atonement for our sins. And it's something that we should not take lightly when we do it, and we need to have proper understanding about it. Communion is an important aspect of our Christian faith. It is also important that we understand the truth about communion and what the Bible tells us about the Lord's Supper. There are teachings regarding the Lord's Supper which are not bearing witness with the proper understanding, however, of why we are told to receive communion and even teachings that are centered around the blood covenant, providing extra biblical teaching, which when scrutinized testifies of unbiblical practices. Now, I know that some people may not like um, this topic and they may disagree with what I'm going to say today on this podcast, but I would encourage you to follow along with me to test what I'm saying, to do research on your own, and above all, to get in the Word of God and read for yourself and to test everything against Scripture to make sure that what we are being told is so and that it is truth. So with that, I want to talk about a recent teaching which was addressed by several ministers expressing concerns about an illustrated sermon about covenants. So in this illustration, a well-known minister, if I said the name, you would know who I'm talking about, but a well-known minister participated with another individual uh, during a conference, and they were talking about different covenants. There was the salt covenant they talked about, and then um, after that, they started going into the blood covenant. Now, as I watched this clip, and I've watched it several times, and I even went to the original source of this clip from this particular ministry and watched it to make sure there was no splicing, no editing, or anything like that, 
but to see it in context. And it was just as disturbing in context as it was in the small clips that were shown by other ministries. The level of disturbance was no different. And I got to say, when, when you're looking at this and you look at this, the, what's talked about, not talking about the salt covenant, but the blood covenant itself, what happened was is that the well-known minister acted like he was cutting his hand. Um, there was grape juice with cups on the, the podium. And what he did was he acted like he was cutting his hand and he had the other gentleman pour grape juice into the cup. And then he acted like he was squeezing out blood from his hand into the cup. And then the other man acted the same way, did the same gestures and motions to act like he was filling up that cup. And then they mixed the two cups together and basically made the statement that in a blood covenant, when there's a mixture of blood, you can't separate the two, that they are one. So then a little bit later in this illustrated sermon, this minister begins to take this cup and he's equating it with the Lord's Supper or communion. So he drinks of the cup, the cup, mind you, that has been modeled as a blood covenant between two human beings, two individuals that are cutting covenant, quote, and uh, joining themselves together as one, so to speak, and providing protection to one another and, and things like that. When you start to look into the blood covenant of this um, teaching, it's to symbolize whatever is yours is mine and whoever comes against you is con- is coming against me and everybody else behind me that's affiliated. So that's what that means in the blood covenant. So this minister was taking this cup that had been mixed between these two individuals and was in the illustrated sermon, their quote, blood. And he begins to drink of this cup and then proceeds to say that the blood of Christ is now mixed in his body with his blood and that Jesus is in his body. And he instructs the congregation before he even does this, that this is how they are to do communion every time that they receive it. Now, I'm going to tell you something because I am familiar with this teaching of the blood covenant not in that aspect of what I witnessed, but there were little details that came to my remembrance from a teaching that I sat under years ago. And when I first saw this, I was disturbed. When I saw this illustrated sermon, I was disturbed and I was troubled for several reasons that are obvious as we'll get into. But aside from the fact that this teaching had nothing to do with the meaning of communion or the better covenant that Christ made, one of the biggest reasons had to do with this illustration being familiar to me from a book I was instructed to read years ago. And that book was called The Miracle of the Scarlet Thread. And actually, I read this book several times. Way back in the day, I actually enjoyed reading it. I thought it was so good. And now I have it uh, earmarked for research purposes only because I see some error in this book. Yes, there's some truth in this book, but there's some major error in this book that I want to talk about today. And I actually did some digging and research and followed the trail back to where this book got their information from. And I'm going to share that with you today. And just to have some more enlightenment on this, so to speak, to help understand and illuminate what's going on with this teaching, and then steer us back to proper biblical understanding of the blood of Christ, and what his blood does for us, because there are attributes that are given to his blood that are not promised to us in the here and now, and we're forgetting the the ultimate call and the ultimate reason that the blood of Christ was spilled for us. And we must remember that, and we cannot attribute certain characteristics to the sacrifice of Christ that are not supposed to be attributed to him. We need to 
be honorable and be respectful and be truthful in that. So in this book, the blood covenant is laid out and things are described and said to be laid out as a biblical blood covenant. I remember reading and there were nine different traits. I remember reading at the beginning of the book that talked about what a blood covenant was. Jonathan and David were used as an example for that. I believe in 1 Samuel 18 where Jonathan takes off his belt and he gives it to David. It does not ever say in that passage that David does the same in return. It merely says that Jonathan gave his belt to David and his weapons that were on it. So in this book it teaches that David actually did the same thing. It goes through nine different things. If I'm not mistaken, it talks about the cutting of covenant and it talks about the cutting of the hand or the wrist and intermingling the blood in a handshake. We're going to get to that in just a minute in a little bit more detail about the, about the, the details that came from a previous book that utilized this. However, they left out some details that would have been nice to know and would help us to get, give more of a red flag to uh, discern, wait a minute, this is not a biblical teaching. This is stemming from pagan rituals in tribes and other places in the nations of the earth. So uh, when you go to scripture and you look at this, when you look at the, the quote blood covenant that's laid out in this book of the scarlet, th- the miracle of the scarlet thread, what you're going to find is, is that the, the pattern laid out for the nine things that they assume are what's in the Bible, which is never laid out in scripture. You're not going to find it there in those nine things that happen with a blood covenant. I had not read this book in years. I had it up on a shelf. I had uh, been, like I said, I've been through it a few times. I had a dog-eared. I had highlighted. I had underlined things in, in the years the last time I'd read it, which has been a long time ago. But I pulled that book out again because there were things that were coming back to my remembrance watching this illustrated sermon and I suddenly realized oh no I remember some of this teaching in this book and this doesn't sound right this isn't this isn't biblical though there were sections in this book though on the flip side there were sections in this book that were biblical in the teaching about the types and shadows of the Old Testament and pointing to Jesus Christ such as the high priest the tabernacle the sacrifices the offerings mentioning the Passover feast all those things were types and shadows we know in the Old Testament that point to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the atonement and the propitiation of sin. There were things in this book that were biblically based. However, when you start out with the blood covenant to to set a foundation and to prove a point, and you can't find that in Scripture, and then using Scripture out of context in order to validate that blood covenant, there is a serious problem with that. I began to research in this book, and it led to a few other books. Because interestingly, all three of these books are linked. There there are three books that I'm going to mention. And this is what I want to talk about today with you guys. The linking of these three books, where the origin of this Miracle of Scarlet Thread actually came from, and the teachings that were in it. And this is probably going to be eye-opening for you, in case you didn't know where this came from. So this will help us in understanding what receiving communion really means for us as believers in Christ and what it does not mean. As we look at this book of the Miracle of the Scarlet Thread, one of the things I noticed in the first few pages was there was a mention that this author could only find a book that mentioned this type of blood covenant, and he referenced Clay Trumbull's book that was written in the 1800s. Now, When you go to look up this book, this book from the 1800s by Trumbull is called The Blood Covenant. And I actually was able to find it online in a PDF file for free. There's websites you can go to that you can look up things at times. And 
if it probably is, if these books are older in print, or if the copyrights coming off of them, I would imagine that that would be why I could be wrong about that. But I began to look at this book, and I printed it out. And I started reading some of it. And this, uh, this first book by Trumbull, the one we'll talk about right now, it's about 400 pages, I did not print out all those pages out. But what I did was I went through and looked at the different table of contents. And I began to look and see what would be uh, correlating with the Miracle of Scarlet Thread. And lo and behold, in the first little bit, I noticed that there was this title called an ancient Semitic rite that was laid out. Now, prior to him talking about this, let me just mention this and quote this out of this book, The Blood Covenant by Trumbull. He begins to talk about understanding oriental modes of thought and speech. He's trying to lay a groundwork so that way he can validate what he's saying basically about all this. And he goes on to say that finding profit in the study of primitive myths and aboriginal religious rites and ceremonies all over the world um, is one of the things that we are to do as believers, that we find profit in those things. Here also is what he says, what has been already gained is but an earnest of what will yet be compassed in the realm of truest biblical research. So you're going to see in Trumbull's book that he lays a foundation that he is going to go back to what other cultures have done in Blood Covenant and apply it to the Bible, even though we can't find a lot of this stuff in the Bible. And this was one of the things that stood out to me, and I could trace it back to the illustrated sermon. He goes on right after this to talk about an ancient Semitic rite. So I want to read some of this to you that I highlighted. And you may find it a bit disturbing, but you're going to see, if you've seen the clip I'm talking about, then you're going to see some similarities in this. It says, one of the, these primitive rites, which is deserving of more attention than it has yet received, as throwing light on many important phases of Bible teaching, is the rite of blood covenanting, a form of mutual covenanting by which two persons enter into the closest, the most enduring, and the most sacred of compacts as friends and brothers, or as more than brothers, through the intercommingling of their blood by means of its mutual tasting. You heard me right. I said of its mutual tasting or of its intertransfusion. Yet it has been strangely overlooked by biblical critics and biblical commentators generally in these later centuries. He says, It was described to me by an intelligent native Syrian who saw it consummated in a village at the base of the mountains of Lebanon. So here he is mentioning that he's getting this secondhand account from this individual that this took place in a village in the mountains of Lebanon. And he goes on to explain it this way. He says it was two young men who were to enter into this covenant. They'd known each other and had been intimate for years, but now they were to become blood brothers in the covenant of blood. And so as he's explaining this, they're publicly announcing their covenant that they're cutting with one another. And he says one of the friends took a sharp lancet and opened a vein in the other's arm. Into the opening thus made, he inserted a quill through which he sucked the living blood. The lancet blade was carefully wiped on one of the duplicate covenant papers, and then it was taken by the other friend who made a like incision in its first user's arm and drank his blood through the quill, wiping the blade on the duplicate covenant record. He then go on, goes on to say, There are many forms of covenanting in Syria, but this is the extremest and most sacred of them all. As it is the intercommingling of very lives, nothing can transcend it. It forms a tie or a union which cannot be dissolved. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I know that Leviticus and also in the book of Acts, when the Jerusalem council was meeting and the Gentiles were becoming part of the church, one of the ground rules that they laid that was part of the Jewish culture was that they were not to eat anything that had been strangled or to ingest blood because they did not want to have any of these paganistic rituals that were not separating them or sanctifying them from the world. If the Gentiles it wasn't about law, but if the Gentiles were going to be set apart for the sake of Christ, then part of that was not to adopt those pagan rituals. Leviticus also talks about this. The life is in the blood. There's a reason why the blood of Jesus is so significant. We are never told to physically and actually drink the blood of Jesus. What we are doing in the Lord's Supper is symbolic of what he did. And so we even see this in the Gospels when he's having the feast with his disciples and he's telling them this, that this is the new covenant. We saw this in John 6 when he's talking to the people there and he's laying out communion and he's talking about eternal life. He's drawing them back to himself because he is the bread and he knew that if they did not quote his flesh and drink his blood that they could not receive eternal life and so that is not us physically and actually eating and drinking his body and drinking his blood but it is a symbolic gesture of remembering what God did through his son on the cross the atonement that he did the price it was paid to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that can only come through the forgiveness of sins and by the blood of Jesus Christ so this portrayal right here which actually the author of the scarlet thread uses in the beginning of his book and he talks about this Hebrew ritual between two men he conveniently leaves out the part where they take the quill and they suck each other's blood he does not put that in there but rather he talks about the cutting of the hand or the wrist and the intermingling of the blood he talks about making a scar putting stuff into the cut to make a scar so that way um, there were stories and accounts of missionaries, um, Livingstone, I believe, that had actually held up his wrist. He had cut covenant with, I believe, 50 different tribes in Africa. And whenever he held up his wrist, the tribes could, other tribe that was opposing him could see all the marks on his arms. And then they knew that all those tribes were covenant in covenant with Livingstone. And they knew not to come against him because all those tribes would be behind Livingstone. And that it wasn't just that missionary by himself. However, though this story may sound powerful and it may sound impactful. This is not a biblical practice. We are never told to do this. We are never told to follow this kind of behavior and to demonstrate this. This is a pagan act. This is a pagan ritual. And the and the Lord is not going to tell us to do something that contradicts the word of God. So already this source that came from the Miracle of Scarlet Thread, we've got a big problem with Trumbull's book because this is referencing a paganistic practice that is forbidden in scripture. Some of the other comments that he makes in this, in this book, too, I want to mention to you. He says, this covenant is commonly between two persons of the same religion, yet it has been known between two persons of different religions. Again, we have another issue here. If we're cutting covenant between two different religions, what does light have to do with darkness? We are not to be unequally yoked with people. So that's something else to consider. Other comments that he makes, I'm just going to read several here because... I just want to help you to understand where the source of this teaching is coming from. It came from this book in The Blood Covenant in 
by Trumbull in the 1800s. In just a minute, we're going to talk about another author that you may know that also referenced this book in his book as well. Some other quotes that Trumbull says, he says, In view of the oriental method of evidencing the closest possible affection and confidence by the sucking of the loved one's blood, there would seem to be more than a coincidence in the fact And he says, the truest friend clings like a leech and draws blood in order to the sharing thereby of his friend's life and nature. So again, I'm pointing out things that are blatantly obvious that this is not behavior that is condoned in scripture by believers in Christ. This is not the covenant of blood that Jesus brought. He brought a better covenant that cleansed us from sin and unrighteousness and brought eternal life by repenting and believing on him as our Lord and Savior. He talks about in the East who and who was familiar with the covenant of blood in its more common form, as already described, that there was this man that told him of a practice somewhat akin to it, whereby a bandit chieftain would pledge his men to implicit and unqualified life-surrendering fidelity to himself, or whereby a conspirator against the government would bind in advance to his plans his fellow conspirators. And they took uh, participated in something called drinking the covenant. Um, they sometimes included a licking a heated iron with the tongue or gashing the tongue or swallowing pounded glass or other dangerous potions. But in all cases, the idea seems to be that the life of the one covenanting is by this covenant devoted, surrendered, as it were, to the one with whom he covenants. And the rite is uniformly accompanied with a solemn and imprecatory appeal to God as witnessing and guarding the compact. End of quote on that. So again, we're going to continue to see this time and time again in this book that as I read through this, it was just really disturbing to me that this man is talking about these things as if it's something that a Christian should be practicing. And this is extra biblical understanding, uh, extra biblical teaching, and it's applying again paganistic rituals and paganistic practices that are not appropriate and not allowed in a scripture according to the God that we belong to and that we serve. He's trying to read some other things here. He talks about the primitive rite illustrated. Primitive rite of blood covenanting was well known in the lands of the Bible at the time of the writing of the Bible, he says. For that very reason, we are not to look to the Bible for a specific explanation of the rite itself even where there are incidental references in the Bible to the rite and its observances. This is, this is Trumbull saying this, not me. He goes on to say, But on the other hand, we are to find an explanation of the biblical illustrations of the primitive rite in the understanding of that rite which we gain from outside sources. In this way, we are enabled to see in the Bible much that otherwise would be lost sight of. So this almost paints the picture of the Bible is insufficient. It's not providing us with all the information that we need. And we know that that's not true. The Bible, the word of God is sufficient. It is sufficient for teaching us everything we need to know and to be equipped for every good work and to be trained up in righteousness. So to imply that the Bible is inept, that it's insufficient in explaining the things that it needs to explain to us is basically saying that God God did not fulfill what he needed to fulfill in his word and that it is not sufficient enough to help us in our understanding as a believer in Christ, which we know that is not true. He talks about in Genesis 13 and 14 about the covenant between individuals. He mentions about Abraham and Abimelech, which we won't talk about for time's sake, but I encourage you to look at these different things. Some of the implications that are made in these books is that there was covenant cut like what they're describing in these pagan practices and these rituals, but that is never stated in scripture. And this is an assumption that is being made. And we do not have the right to make assumptions about this. 
He goes on to say, as to the manner of its making, we have a right to infer from all that we know of the manner of such covenant making among the people of their part of the world in the earliest days of recorded history. So actually, we don't have a right to refer to infer in that we are to go by what scripture tells us. And again, when we read scripture, it tells us that practices drinking blood and doing such things were forbidden. He does talk about some other things about planting a tree, which I do remember reading uh, in the Miracle of the Scarlet Thread. He talks about the planting of a tree as a memorial, that that was part of cutting a covenant with someone. And that was actually listed as one of the things for a Hebrew, two Hebrew men to do, which we don't see that in, we don't see nine distinct traits that are listed when forming a covenant with somebody. We don't see that this is being inferred from the passages of scripture and being piecemealed together in order to create an, an extra biblical revelation. Uh, he talked about Jonathan and David cut a covenant because Jonathan loved David as his own soul. He is talking about, he said, having his own blood, the life of God and the life of man, Jesus Christ could make men sharers of the divine nature by making them sharers of his own nature. And this was the truth of truths, which he declared to those whom he instructed. In the primitive rite of blood covenanting, men drank of each other's blood in order that they might have a common life. Now, something that Trumbull mentions in his book that was also rather disturbing to me, he goes on to talk about something in here which he references as transmigration of souls. And this is the belief in the transmigration of souls from man to the lower animals and vice versa. And he says this has been found among various peoples in all the historic ages. Now, this, this in and of itself was a very disturbing thing to me reading this. Uh, not only just the, the drinking of blood and the, the cutting of the covenant, as it were, that he talks about. He talks about blood bathing, blood drinking and such. But this transmigration of souls was also very disturbing. Because in this, he talks about the concept that if a man passes into the body of a beast, this is a quote from him, if the blood of a man passes into the body of a beast or the blood of a beast passes into the body of a man, why should it not be inferred that the soul of the man or of the beast transmigrated accordingly? He says, if the Hindu, believing that the blood of man is the soul of man, sees the blood of a man drunk up by a tiger, is it strange that he should look upon that tiger as having within him the soul of the Hindu, which has been thus appropriated? If the South African supposes that by his drinking the blood or eating the heart of a lion, he appropriates the lion's courage, is it to be wondered at that when he sees a lion licking the blood and eating the heart of a South African, he should infer that the lion is thereby the possessor of whatever was distinctive in the Zulu or the Hottentot personally? So he is inferring that the, the soul is in the blood and that there can be a migration between an animal and between a person and they can switch and actually migrate between one another because of the blood. So I hope that you're seeing here just in the, some of these examples from this book from Trumbull that this is not biblical teaching. This is not anything as Christians we are to adopt. And this was the source of the miracle of the scarlet thread. And I encourage you if you if you're interested in looking at books for research purposes only and checking this out or if you have it I encourage you to look that up because it is in that book. I've read it myself and seen it. That is referenced in that book. Now, another thing that I found troubling as well is I found, I followed the trail here and I found a third book because this minister that I was watching, I knew that he was probably familiar with E.W. Kenyon. 
and his teaching. E.W. Kenyon was actually um, one of the main founders of the Word of Faith. He taught the metaphysical, he taught new thought, and so this was a foundational teaching that was adopted by some ministers that are well-known in the Word of Faith movement. And so I started thinking about this, thinking about this book about the Scarlet Thread I'd read, and then thinking about Trumbull's book, and it got me thinking and digging more. And lo and behold, I found a book by E.W. Kenyon called The Blood Covenant. And in this book, which is a very short book, E.W. Kenyon talks about the new covenant in my blood is the, ch- is the first chapter. And he says in this book, quote, There was placed in my hands a book by Dr. H. Clay Trumbull, the old editor of the Sunday School Times, in which he showed there had been a blood covenant practiced by all primitive peoples from time immemorial. He proved that this blood covenant was the basis of all primitive religions. He gave data from all parts of the world showing that even to that which is practiced by the native tribes of Africa, by the Arabs, by the Syrians, and by the Balkans is this. Two men wish to cut the covenant. They come together with their friends and a priest. And he begins to explain this happening here. First, they exchange gifts. By this exchange of gifts, they indicate that all of that one has the other owns if necessary. After the exchange of gifts, they bring a cup of wine. The priest makes an incision in the arm of one man and the blood drips into the wine. An incision is made in the other man's arm and his blood drips into the same cup. Is this sounding familiar? It may have been a different gesture in the hand, but this is the same thing that was seen in the illustrated sermon. Then the wine is stirred and the bloods are mixed. Then the cup is handed to one man and he drinks part of it, then hands it to the other man and he drinks the rest of it. When they have drunk it, oft times they will put their wrists together so that their blood mingles and they will touch their tongues to each other's wounds. Now they have become blood brothers. This is a pagan practice. And Kenyon mentions this because he is talking about Trumbull's book. So all three of these books are linked together. Now, whether or not the Miracle of Scarlet Thread utilized Kenyon's teaching, it never says, and there's no bibliography to support that. But it seems interesting to me that all three of these books are linked. And there were some parallels that I made between Kenyon's book and the Miracle of Scarlet Thread. When I read it, there were some references in there that seemed to coincide with both books but all three of them are linked in the information that they're sharing between one another. And again, this is going back to unbiblical practices. Kenyon talks about that the covenants cut in Africa. He mentions the account with Stanley, thought that he had been beaten, but he found that whatever he, wherever he went in Africa with the spear, everybody bowed to him and submitted to him. So he actually got an old chieftain's spear And they were able to make a trade because Stanley was in poor health. He had a goat, and that's how he used the goat's milk to survive. And so they ended up making a trade. So he gave the chieftain the goat, and the chieftain handed him his seven-foot copper wound spear. So wherever Stanley went when he had this spear, it was as if the people were afraid of him, and they would bow down and submit to him. And so then he goes on in this book, Kenyon does, to explain this. And this is the the words that he uses quote the old chieftain then brought in one of his princes stanley led forth one of his men from england then the priest came forward with a cup of wine made an incision in the young black's wrist and let the blood drip into the cup of wine he cut a like incision in the wrist of the young englishman and let his blood also drip into the cup of wine then the wine was stirred and the bloods were mixed the priest handed the cup to the englishman and he drank part of it and then handed it to 
the, the black man and he drank the rest of it. Next, they rubbed their wrists together so that their bloods mingled. Now they had become blood brothers. These two men were only substitutes, but they had been bound, they had bound Stanley and the chieftain and Stanley's men and the chieftain's soldiers into a blood brotherhood that was indissolvable. So we are seeing primitive acts from African tribes, and there were many other tribes too. This is all over the world that this would happen. But we're seeing in this instant that there was this covenant that was cut. And then he even goes to talk about gunpowder was rubbed into the wound so that when it would heal, there was a black mark to indicate that they were covenant men. This was mentioned in the miracle of the scarlet thread. So this was talked about, about making a scar that was part of the covenant between the Hebrew men. Yet we don't see this in scripture ever. We don't see this mentioned. This is not a practice that we are to condone or to adopt. And then he talks about that they planted a tree. And this is something that was also mentioned in the miracle of the scarlet thread. He talks about cursings and blessings that would follow. He taught and here. I want to read some pretty troubling quotes from Kenyon's book, the blood covenant that really are not based in biblical teaching. He said, quote, this is a startling thing, but Adam's sin had touched heaven itself. We don't have any record that sin touches heaven. That is not a biblical understanding of sin. He said, quote, he has bridged the gulf, talking about Jesus the mediator, he has bridged the gulf between God and man. He is equal with God and he is equal with man. That is not a good understanding of the hypostatic union. Jesus is not equal with man. He's all God and all man. There had to be an atonement of sin. God could not just do that as all just God himself. It had to be all God and all man and in that uh, atonement for sin. Because the first Adam failed and rebelled against God, Jesus is known as the second Adam, and he fulfilled the law and the words of the prophets according to Scripture. When talking about the fourfold blessings, this is some of the things Kenyon says. He says, quote, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the moment you are born again, that moment God imparts to you righteousness. That gives you a standing in the presence of the Father identical with the standing of Jesus. He says, Jesus had no consciousness of inferiority before the Father, for he had no consciousness of sin. Well, that's because Jesus never sinned. So this sin consciousness is an interesting an interesting way of talking about this when there is no talk of having this understanding of sin consciousness in, in what he's trying to infer. When he says, quote, what is the gospel? He says, the gospel is this, that God on the ground of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ is able to declare that he is righteous and that he himself is our righteousness the moment we believe on Jesus. This is the most staggering thing the mind ever grasped, that God Almighty becomes your righteousness the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, when you learn to walk as Jesus walked without any consciousness of inferiority to God or Satan, you will have faith that will absolutely stagger the world. Now, this is not an appropriate understanding of the gospel when I read this. When I read this, I do not see in here the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to atone for sin laid out plainly. If I'm reading this wrong, then please let me know that. But when I'm looking at this, yes, his righteousness is imputed to us, but this is not so that we can have faith to stagger the world or that we can walk without consciousness of inferiority to God or Satan. We are inferior to God, and Satan is inferior to God because he is a created being. There is no one like God. There is no other God before or after him. There is no one equal to him. He is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. So there is no antithesis that's equal to God. Satan is a defeated foe. 
So this whole thing here, when he says, what is the gospel? This is a misrepresentation. And it's again, coming into this whole teaching of word of faith. It's coming into new thought that you, that your words have power, that you speak things into existence, that you will have faith that will absolutely stagger the world. He talks about another blessing that this covenant brings is your union with God. When those two men drank each other's blood, they became one, absolutely one. Now, let me point out something here that should be obvious to us in the Lord's Supper. Never is our blood mingled with Christ's blood. Never did he sit at the table with his fellow disciples in that last feast. Never did he tell them to cut themselves and put their blood in that cup. It was symbolic of the blood of Christ. To say that our blood is mixed in with that is to defile the blood of Christ. If we have to have our blood mingled in there, then his blood is insufficient to atone for our sins. He does not need us to do that, nor did the Bible tell us to do that. That is a pagan practice. Kenyon says the incarnation was God becoming one with us. If I'm understanding that correctly, that almost has a ring to it like pantheism. So yes, we are the body of Christ, but we are not Christ. And we must remember that there's only one Jesus Christ he is the son of the living God. He is the second person of the Trinity and he is God. We are not and we are not Christ. Kenyon says you are in blood covenant relationship with God Almighty. He says, I say it reverently if I understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the vision he has given me of it. That all of heaven's ability and heaven's glory and heaven's strength are at the disposal of the believer. He says we are to absolutely reign as Christ and with Christ. How? By faith. Again, this is a twisting of the understanding of faith. Our faith is not in our faith, and our faith is not in our words. Our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is in Christ alone to save us from the wrath of God and to provide us with eternal life and to reconcile us back to the Father so that we become co-heirs with Christ. We are adopted as sons of God into the kingdom of heaven and given eternal life and redemption. That's the gospel. It's good news. But the news is that we is not that we are to absolutely reign as Christ and with Christ. To say that we are Christ is an unbiblical teaching. He says, oh, we have that name. That name makes us like Jesus. No, we are conformed to the image of Christ. But there are implications in this book by Kenyon that are stating that we are Christ. And that is not true. He says, you are the very son of God called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. If that's not plain to you that he's saying that we are Christ, then I don't know what else to tell you. Because that statement in and of itself to say, you are the very son of God, that is an improper biblical understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And it's appropriating traits to us and a divinity to us that we do not have. When he talks about the Lord's table, what that teaches, he's also tying in communion as this minister did with the illustrated sermon that we talked about at the beginning. Kenyon says, God is love. Not only is he a, a God of love, but he is a father God. He believed the universe into being. Now see, here we come with this. This is this, your words have power, the word of faith. And if we look at Hebrews 11 in context, we will see God did not have, it was not God's faith that called it into existence, the world into existence. It's us believing that God did that, that we believe by faith that God did that. It was not God's faith. God is God. He did it because of who he is, and he is God, and he's the one that calls things into existence. 
Kenyon says, he believed the universe into being. When the man went astray, he believed that he could bring him back, that a challenge of love would reach him. He says, he believed men into new creations, and he believes them into victory. He believes them into the love walk with each other. This is not repentance. I'm telling you this. This is not in his book. This is not repentance. What these just said, that God believed man into a new creation, that he believed him into victory. We're not told that in scripture. We're told to repent and believe. He says, love is the only universal appeal to man. Jesus believed as a father believed. Jesus acted his faith. He believed that if he became man's substitute, if he believed he became man's substitute, that man would respond. And that if he could prove to the world that he loved men so much that he died for them, that he suffered the torments of the damned for them, there would be a response. Again, where is this in scripture? Where is this taught that Jesus believed if he did, if he became the substitution? He knew he was the substitution. It was planned from the foundations of the world. This was not an unplanned pregnancy. This was planned out. God knew that Christ would come and that he would atone for sin. It was not an accident. It was not by chance or happenstance. It was planned and it was done in the fullness of time. That's what scripture tells us. And Jesus did not have to believe and pump himself up to believe that he was the substitutionary atonement for our sins. He knew that he was the, the lamb who would be slain from the foundations of the world. Kenyon said he acted his faith. He had faith in humanity today. He has faith in the church. He has faith in himself and in his own living word that it would win out. He says the Lord's table is a confession of our faith and our loyalty to love. He says it was a covenant. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant. As often as you drink it, you show your faith in his covenant until he comes. He says, when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you ratify this covenant. It is a love covenant. First, it is your loyalty and love to Jesus. Second, it is your loyalty and love for his body, the church. So I hope you can see just from these short readings from excerpts from these books is that the foundation that they are laying for their interpretation of a blood covenant is borrowing from the practices of pagan cultures. We are never told to make a blood covenant with another person like tribes and primitive areas of the world do, cutting our wrists or hands and rubbing the blood together and putting gunpowder in them to make a scar so we can show it to somebody else and show how powerful we are. No, we are never told to drink blood. And in fact, Scripture forbids this practice, as we've talked about, both in the Old and New Testament. And furthermore, the better covenant established by Christ was by his blood alone. And this covenant is clearly seen in Scripture. Just to list a few scriptures that we can talk about, we see in the book of Hebrews and Hebrews 9 that it talks about the better covenant. Let's take a look at that for just a moment. Hebrews 9 verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He then goes on in verse 22, the author of Hebrews says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of Christ was shed to forgive us of sins. So when we confess and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead, we shall be saved, according to Romans 10. We are forgiven, and that is done only 
by the shedding of blood through Jesus Christ on the cross. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath. Colossians 1, 20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul makes a reference to the church in Ephesus saying in Acts 20 verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And as we talked about before, when we see in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 through 26, we see the account of the time of Passover feast and the the Lord's Supper and the communion, the instructions that Christ gave to his disciples at that feast about the the body and the blood and that they were to do that in remembrance of him. In fact, let's look at that real quick. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we can see from the gospel accounts in Matthew and Luke, we can see in the gospel of John 6 when he talks about the reference to the communion and to the shedding of blood and what that would mean for eternal life. We can see in 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper that this is the new covenant that Christ brought by his blood. And when we receive communion or the Lord's Supper, we're calling into remembrance what Christ did for us. We're not mingling his blood in our body and doing something mystical with that. It doesn't mean that we are promised certain things that we want to attribute to his blood. What is certain from the blood of Christ is that when we believe on him as our Lord and Savior and repent of our sins, that he is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that can only happen through the blood of Jesus Christ that, would sh that was shed for us at Calvary on the cross. That is the only way to be forgiven and cleansed of sin and to be imputed righteousness from God unto us so that we can stand before God and be pure. I hope that this has helped you today. And I hope that if you've read any of these books, that you will take a second look at them and test them against scripture. Maybe you didn't even know about some of these older books and know about the references. You know, I've been guilty of this. I've just like I read this book years ago. I remember glancing and seeing this man's name in there as a reference to this book that he used, but I never did my due diligence to look and see what this teaching was that came out of this old book from the 1800s by Trumbull. And now looking at it years later, I'm really disturbed at the fact that this is, was being utilized and that parts were left out so that it wouldn't raise major red flags. The fact of the matter is, is that there is a, there is a under, misunderstanding with the blood covenant, with the blood of Christ in some areas of the church. And we've got to get this right. If we don't, then we miss, we do miss Christ altogether, as I said at the beginning from my blog post. If we don't get that right, then we are missing what the blood of Christ does. And if you're someone who's never repented of your sins, who's never put your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, I encourage you today, 
Repent and believe in Christ alone. Repent and believe the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins. That means that he satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. There is nothing that we can do to deserve it. We can't earn it. We are like our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we don't deserve anything but the wrath of God when we don't know him. But thank God that he sent his son to die so that there would be reconciliation made with the father, that we could have eternal life and be with him forever, and that we could be clothed in his righteousness and cleansed from all unrighteousness, cleansed from sin, and that we could know him and the power of his resurrection, that we would be part of that promise of being resurrected and glorified with Christ when he comes back for his church. So in closing, Again, I encourage you, study things, test things, look into them, test them against Scripture. Make sure that what you are believing is the truth according to His Word, because His Word is truth. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.